Episode 29. Money is optional. Day 60. Diego was born and raised in Oaxaca, the Mexican state where I was stuck. He had spent his entire life surfing secret locations around the region. He had been a sponsored surfer and was now a local surf guide. With my car fixed, he and I took off on an epic three-week surfing whirlwind. Hours upon hours, surfing perfect waves with no one around. Or snoozing, cuddled up in a hammock, or in the shade between sessions. This is the stuff surfers dream of. Many will pay thousands of dollars for the opportunity to drive up on a hidden stretch of sand to see a perfect barreling wave. No other people for miles. Many others are never able to find such perfection at all. I had hit the jackpot. I was getting to do it all and in the company of an incredibly handsome and sweet pro surfer slash Latin lover one who gushed with affection for me, as only a Latino can do. I could never have dreamed of anything more. Diego took me to meet his family. They lived in a tiny village in a cinder block house with no AC or windows. They had no flush toilet or kitchen. Diego was the second youngest of 12 children, every one of whom had been born and raised in that house. I met his mother as she cooked tortillas over a stone oven, heated by a fire. His elderly father struggled out of a hammock to greet me with a kiss on the cheek. He took me by the shoulders and stepped back for a better look. I was at least four inches taller than him and outweighed him by a great deal. Dame un nieto. A huge grin lit up his face as he asked me to give him a grandchild. I could see Diego's smile with that grin. We stayed a couple of days in Diego's village, a decent beach break lay out front, completely unknown to white people. As I'd observed in other small Mexican communities, a complete and utter lack of stress coexisted with extreme poverty and a sense of total contentment prevailed. Families passed the hot days together, hanging out in their open air homes, lying in hammocks and chatting with neighbors. During the cooler hours, people took on small amounts of work, such as basic farming, fishing, harvesting fruit, and cooking. Some families earned a tiny amount of money by operating small stores from which they sold a couple bottles of water or a few packs of chips per day. As much as they were businesses, the stores were places for families to hang out together. The cashier might be nine years old. Seated on a woven chair in front of the store, you might find teenage girls passing their babies amongst one another. Families might also draw draw income from small restaurants, which functioned like stores. Uh, They were a place to kick back with those closest to you. Occasionally, a few pesos were earned. Huge smiles seemed to be the requirement for living in Diego's village. Earning an income was not. It became clear to me, for some on earth, life was not a struggle. There was a second way. Family, friends, relationships, and community. Diego told me of another secret location, even farther south. He said he'd take me there. We drove on the highway for an hour, and for another hour down a washed-out dirt road. I kept asking him if he was sure we were going the right way. The road was nearly impassable. I was grateful for my four-wheel drive. 
Eventually, we came over a hill to see the ocean spread gloriously in front of us, but no waves. Diego assured me that we weren't there yet. The road ended in sand, and Diego hopped out without explanation. He circled the truck, letting out about a third of the air out of each tire. He got back in and simply pointed down the beach. I put the truck in the lowest gear and carefully rolled onto the soft sand. The truck slowed and the RPM shot up, but all four tires gripped and we started to make our way across the beach. What looked like a steep drop lay about a mile ahead. I grew increasingly nervous as we approached it. The closer I got, the more I could see. I realized we were at the top of a large sand dune. Do we have to go down that hill? I asked. Mamacita, no te preocupes. Tengo muchos amigos por acá. Pueden ayudar. Todo bien, tranquilo, was his response. So I quit worrying and kept driving as instructed. As we crested the dune, two things became quickly apparent. First, a perfect barreling wave with absolutely no one around awaited us at the bottom of the hill. Second, the hill was probably way too steep to drive back up. But the allure of the wave eclipsed any need for control as I plowed through the sand dunes down the steep incline. T minus six months. 5.15 a.m. The sound of the alarm made me want to cry. In the space of 15 minutes, I managed to pull my hair into a messy bun, squeeze my butt into my two small yoga pants, and stumble out the door. It was my first client's home at 5.45 a.m., ready to work out with her in her home gym. I had just enough time for a gas station coffee and a protein bar before reaching my 7.30 a.m. yoga class. Between my 7.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. yoga class, I spent an hour sending emails. After the 10.30 a.m. class, I headed back to the gas station for another coffee and another protein bar. I locked the door to the studio so I wouldn't be interrupted doing payroll, emailing clients with late accounts, sending personalized texts to every new client from the last four days, posting to my business social media accounts, updating the substitute teacher's online schedule and writing the newsletter. I made another trip to the gas station for a third coffee and a giant cookie around 4 p.m. At 5 p.m., I grabbed my longboard and rushed to the cliffs for a quick sunset surf. I made it home in just enough time to eat a hunk of cold chicken from the fridge, grab some baby carrots before running to the yoga studio to cover the front desk. I checked students into the computer system by memory, greeted each one by name as they walked through the door. I remembered to ask about their injury, how their kid's performance went last week, What's up with their loser ex-boyfriend? As soon as the teacher began the class, I locked the door behind me and rushed across the neighborhood to make it to the town council meeting. By 8.30 p.m., I had finished making my reports to the board for the three committees I chaired or co-chaired, and I had a list of new homework to be completed before the next meeting. My phone rang during the seven-block walk home. It was Paul. He wanted to hang out. Look, you can come over, but I still have some work to finish on my computer. That's fine. I can just be mellow and read or something. 
At 9 p.m., I heated up more leftover chicken and threw together a salad. We ate and laughed for a few minutes, but I was antsy to get back to work. We sat in the living room, Paul quietly reading and me quietly editing a blog until 10.30 p.m. I'm sorry, Paul. I can't keep my eyes open any longer. It's okay. It was nice to spend time with you and see you anyway. See you at the cliffs tomorrow. Sunset? Yeah, and maybe this weekend I'll actually have some time for fun. Maybe we can go skateboard the alleyways or something. Even as I said it, I already knew it wasn't going to happen. There simply wouldn't be any time for fun. Or for people. I had too much to do. Back in Oaxaca, the wave was perfect. Too perfect. We were exhausted after only an hour from having ridden so many waves. We were also starving and parched. The midday sun beat down and no man-made structure was visible in any direction. I always kept extra water in my car, but I knew three liters would hardly get us through the day. And there was also the problem of food and shade. When I mentioned these to Diego, he scowled and asked why I never trusted him. He told me to put my board under the car, grab my water and a hat, and follow him. I obeyed. We hiked for 15 minutes into the jungle down a narrow machete-cut path. The path took a turn, heading straight up the mountain. After another 10 minutes, the jungle canopy parted to reveal a small hut with bamboo sides and a palm frond roof. A little trickle of smoke snaked from a hole in the roof. Diego whistled loudly. A man ducked to exit the hut and emerged, hunched, shirtless, and skinny. He appeared to be about 100 years old, and he waved vigorously. Facundo was a dive fisherman. He lived for his entire adult life in the hut he had built on a cliff. He owned the land on which we, he'd built the hut. In addition, he owned a few sets of clothing which hung from a line inside the hut, reeking of campfire smoke. He had a hammock and a few improvised fishing tools for harpooning fish and hooking octopus. Other than those few essential items, Facundo owned nothing at all. His smile lacked several teeth, but he didn't need them as he sat on a rock, slurping oysters right out of the shell. He hacked one open and handed it to me. It was the size of my hand. I had tried oysters a couple of times at fancy restaurants, but only with lots of lime, hot sauce, and horseradish. But Facundo's oysters were huge and impossible to swallow whole, so you had to chew their mushy flesh. I gagged and nearly threw up as I slurped it down. He saw I was struggling to eat it, so he hacked open a second shell, scooped out the flesh, and rinsed it in some murky water stored in a hacked-off two-liter bottle. He handed me the brown and white oyster, presenting it on a dirty hand alongside an already squeezed slice of lime. The second oyster, anointed with a single drop of lime juice, was no better than the first. I politely refused a third, saying I was already full. Facundo dug into another hacked-off plastic bottle, extracting three small octopuses from its turbid waters. Proudly, he mounted one on each finger, holding them aloft with a huge, toothless grin and crying, Foto! Foto! (laughs) as he handed me his flip phone. The octopus was sliced, doused in lime juice, and handed to me in chunks. The second course was a significant improvement of the first, and I ate until I was truly satisfied. 
after we had eaten the equivalent of about a hundred American dollars of seafood, Facundo led us on a tour of his land. He guided us to a mound of oyster shells. There must have been at least 10,000. I kid you not. Then Diego and Facundo disappeared into the palapa without inviting me in. I eavesdropped from outside. Surprisingly, I was able to understand quite a bit of the conversation. They were conducting a business negotiation. Apparently, Facundo had asked on a previous visit for Diego to find a buyer for his property. Diego had indeed found a buyer. The asking price was 1.5 million American dollars. But I could hear the older man growing heated. He demanded, where can I live that people will not bother me? I like being alone. I like it here on the mountain with no one else. Where will I dive? I don't want to eat and get fat like the people from the city. It was amazing. This man had absolutely no idea what 1.5 million would do for the rest of his life, but he didn't care. Money had absolutely no value to him. He preferred to eat octopus and sleep in a hammock in filthy clothes, all to preserve his lifestyle. I was amazed. This man had found a second way, a way that was starting to resonate with me. Diego and I stayed a couple of days, surfing until the swell dropped off. We cooked over a campfire and slept on the beach under a million trillion stars. We ate fish, caught by hand line, and drew fresh water from Facundo's well. Finally, it was time for an actual bed and a shower, so we said goodbye and packed the truck. I had been dreading the As I had anticipated on the ride down the steep dune, we did indeed get stuck on the drive back up its severe slope. I hit the gas and the wheels dug deeper. Diego screamed at me for for me to stop. I obeyed. I had some two-by-fours cut at a hardware store in San Diego, just in case the situation ever materialized. We dug the boards into the sand under the tires. Diego pushed while I drove. We made it out of the hole and returned to the base of the hill. We let more air out of the tires and tried again. Once again, the truck sunk into the soft sand, and once again, we dug it out. Diego's face whitened. I started to get pissed, more at myself for trusting him than for him getting me into this mess. After a third exhausting attempt, I was livid. As Diego pushed the truck out of the hole for the third time and the tires caught, I drove away from him at full speed back down the hill. I whipped the truck around on the flat sand and got a 300 yard running start. I was driving way faster than I felt comfortable with, and the back end of the truck fishtailed violently. I hit the dune at a gentle angle and floored the gas pedal. I whizzed by Diego, who stood dumbstruck at the crazy lady behind the wheel. It worked. I nearly caught air as I crested the dune. Diego was still down on the beach holding two two-by-fours, but I wasn't stopping until I hit hard-packed dirt. I reached a dirt road a few kilometers away. I parked the car in the shade, let my dog out to play, rolled down the windows, reclined my seat, and closed my eyes. An hour later, Diego appeared, sweating and huffing. He woke me from my nap, and we both had a good laugh.
Diego and I spent the next two weeks adventure surfing through the region, living off pennies, sleeping anywhere the surf was good, and having the time of our lives. It was like something out of a surf romance novel, but the plot would take a dangerous twist. I hope you liked this episode. I have a lot more content on my website, 100daysinmexico.com. There's an insider section where I post, along with every episode, an insider's behind the scenes look at what else was going on. I also post premium content about my current travels, what's going on in my life right now. A lot of it's pretty honest, raw, and real. It's about the cost of a cup of coffee per month. So if you like my content, I hope you'll check it out. Until next time. Thank you.